people would come in with a very floppy baby. Gives me goosebumps. She said, I'm pushing. She pushed. And we had a little 32-weeker baby just there. Two foot two having responding code one. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. Amniotic fluid, the fluid that's around the baby, is like a protolytic enzyme. It is really corrosive to aircraft aluminium. If you break your waters on a lounge, two years' time you'll be throwing it out. The RFDS is lucky to have many, many long-serving staff. It's not uncommon for our clinical staff to have been working with us for more than a decade. Being a nurse is a challenging role in the best of circumstances. But for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, our flight nurses are truly something special. They have to be professionally competent to be able to deal with whatever comes their way, from accidents and injuries like broken limbs, lacerations, deep wounds, burns, stings, accidental poisoning, drownings, or even motor vehicle accidents and farm injuries. They also have to be able to care for severely ill patients or complications with birth, infants, children and the elderly. I think the one quality, however, that is evident with every flight nurse I have met is their love and care for those we serve. They become part of the communities they fly into. They often know generations of families and they earn the trust of people through their day-to-day work. In this episode, we'll be walking in the shoes of a flight nurse who has worked with the service for many decades. Susan Markwell is a wonderful asset with the RFDS and I'm really pleased she's come to tell us about her adventures. Tell me, when did you decide you wanted to work in healthcare? Was it from a really young age? Yes, my dad was a rural GP in Innisfail and at that stage the surgery was, you know, below the house. We lived upstairs. So from a very early age I've been sort of surrounded by medical emergencies and, and just general health care in, in a small area in Innisfail. Wow. How did you end up coming to be seconded to Charlieville uh, in 1987, I think it was? Yes. Uh, I had, in those days, um, the Division of Child Health, we used to have what they would call a triple certificate nurse. So you had your general, you had your midwifery, and then you did child health which was a six-month course. And at the end of that, the only jobs that were available, because really it was nine to five, so a lot of people, you know, you had to basically wait for someone to die before you got a job. So um, I went west and and Charleville came up and I actually had to look up a map and see where it was, which was really a bad thing to say probably. But um, it was 747 kilometres from Brisbane and I thought that's a pretty good omen. And uh, part of the part of the job description was you um, have to help, or you 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 do child health, but you're seconded to the flying doctor service um, to assist their doctor in that stage. Mm. Wow! So, what did you think of that three day journey to travel in your little Mazda three two three? What did what was that travel like across the dividing range to an area that you'd never lived in or been to before? 
it was pretty amazing. Like my mates who were from the country just said, can't believe it's taking you three days to, to drive to Charleville. Um, but it uh, long distance driving wasn't my forte at all. And I had mates on the way. So I stopped and, and um, made, a, made a good trip of it. But it was pretty crazy driving into that red mulga country. Um, and like, I'd never really been in the cold. I'd been onto them to say, is the building heated? I mean, I have no idea. I'm from North Queensland. Um, and then, you know, I can remember one morning washing my hair and looking outside and it was wet. It was just white. Everything was white. And I rang my mother at 6.30 and I said, I think it's snowed. What do I do? Like, is my hair going to snap? And <laughs> she my said, hair gonna snap? get a beanie. <laughs> so off I went to work at 7am in the freezing cold, but I, I you know, quickly adapted. Mm. How old were you at that point? Um, I was about 28. So I had, was a bit streetwise. I'd done a few trips overseas and things. So, um, and worked in London. I'd worked around Brisbane and, yeah. And, and was the country lifestyle different to what you were used to, both in Brisbane and Innisfail earlier? Was it, was it a different um, Absolutely. type of people and lifestyle? Uh, yes, yes. And we used to fly out in the Queen Airs in those days. Um, and the Queen Air CRF had no heating, which was pretty traumatic in Charleville in winter. But um, we used to fly out west to, to small properties that – I think even in the 80s were shrinking. They used to have quite a big, there would be lots of sort of outlying homesteads which would be for all the um, the support staff, you know, all the, the usually the, the workmen and their families and things. But that even then was shrinking down to just getting contractors in. So just having the manager and, a, and his family. So there'd usually be sort of, you know, two or three families instead of having sort of 17 workmen now. So it, it was a changing environment then, but Charleville had a lot of money then and it was, it was still very prosperous. You know, people were going out and there was the Warrego Club and, you know, people were, you know, had a lot of money and properties were, were looking good. Yeah. yeah. Now, that was the first time you started to do 24-7 shifts, is that right? Oh, yes. <laughs> so tell me, how did that impact your life? That's a big change. That was a big change. Uh, we only had one doctor, one pilot and one nurse in Charleville. And that, you know, just sort of, you just did it. I think I got paid $2.50 extra a night for being on call. Um, we didn't have too many night calls. They were usually pretty dramatic if they were, because we were doing clinics all day. So, uh, and then on, I think we got Sunday afternoon every once a month, the, the aircraft had to go to Roma for servicing so that we sort of got a day off there. If I needed days off, I asked the hospital and we'd get some some nurses to relieve us then, mm. you know, if I want to go to Brisbane or something. Yeah. yeah. So what sort of work, um, when you mentioned clinics, what sort of clinics were you doing? What sort of work was your everyday? Chalawa was was sort of fairly short and lots of, lots of hops. We would go um, to the smaller places like Stonehenge, um, Junda, Yawa, Yulo, set up in the hall. You know, you'd go in, take all these big tackle boxes in and set up everything and all the kids would run around and you'd sort of, you know, sequester the doctor into a little tiny room somewhere and you'd do all the bloods and the dressings and sort everyone out and be the receptionist and the, you know, the filer and the everything. So it was good. You know, it was good fun and you got to know the families and 
there was lots of, you know, stuff that you talked about sort of, you know, over the kids or over the files or, yeah. Was that at the time, so this is in um, the late 80s, was was the Flying Doctor the only doctor service that was coming to these communities? Like would they, you know, line up and, and have, would you come once a week or once a month or what, how did it, that work in terms of service provision? Generally the smaller communities were like once a month or once a fortnight and it was a huge social event. Like people would drive in, you know, a couple of hours from properties if they needed to see the doctor. There was always a fantastic spread put on. You know, there were, Everyone would bring a plate with homemade goodies out the wazoo. Um, and that, you know, it was quite a quite a social thing. You know, occasionally you'd say, quick, go and get your blood pressure taken, you know, because, you know, we can't lose the service. Um, but generally there was, there was quite a bit of just general GP work. We would do all the child health and the vaccinations for the children. Um, getting extra services if you had like a a speech impediment or something, you know, you it would be very difficult um, to get, you know, a speechy or some of those services. They would have to go to, say, Longreach or Charleville mm-hmm. where there were more visiting services. But um, very country people are pretty resilient. They'll, uh, they'll do whatever it takes really, yeah. Now, when the RFDS provides primary health services to a number of very large Indigenous communities in far north Queensland and the Cape York Peninsula. Um, have you enjoyed working in Indigenous communities and getting to know the families and the communities? Absolutely. We um, were the, the main provider of child health basically up until a few years ago where it was transitioned over to an Indigenous community um, control basically uh, and an Indigenous organisation at, at Punapima. But Prior to that, we um, prided ourselves on having fantastic coverage. And when I first started, it was like half a day in Kawanyama and half a day in Lockhart and half a day in Arakoon and you'd just be flat out, you know, with 15 to 20 babies and, you know, it was just crazy, crazy. And then finally, with a lot of traction, we ended up having um, more time and more resources. And then in the end, we we were lucky enough to be able to go into community for three days and sleep in community for two nights, which was great because, you you know, you'd go, if you're able to, go out, go for a walk in the afternoon, go down the landing, say hello to mum's fishing, you know, just... And so you were more integrated. And I think the fact that you you stayed there, your face got known, you got a bit of street cred, you know, and um, you were there to to um, provide a good service. And we also at that stage had, had one of the highest immunisation rates in Australia um, for, for, um, for childhood vaccinations, which was pretty high achievement. So how is that um, in terms of uh, the implementation of immunisation across those communities? How has that changed the health outcomes? Uh, I think with the pneumococcal, we used to, when in the early days... Um, Prior to pneumovax, um, pneumococcal vaccinations, you know, babies would sort of people would come in occasionally with with a very floppy, pallid baby. You know, it just gives me goosebumps. Um, it it they were just moribund. Whereas now we don't get those really sick babies very often because the vaccinations have been so good. And I think also having more services in the community, people would present earlier. You know, 
because you're there, they'll, they will definitely access that service, you know, if it's available um, for their sick baby, yeah. On a national basis, um, more than half of those that we serve are Indigenous um, and we're honoured to be able to provide health service in Indigenous communities. Um, and we work closely with elders and and the Aboriginal medical services to meet local needs in it like a community-led approach. And I think for us as a service, cultural safety and responsibility has really um, been something we've been concentrating on and working on um, with our Reconciliation Action Plan. We don't have it perfectly yet and I don't know that we ever will. But in your view, has it changed over over the last two decades in terms of the way we provide service to Indigenous communities in a culturally safe way? Absolutely. We have um, certainly employed more Indigenous people to help that process um, and with with that interface, I think we've got a better response. You know, it's easier to get those services rolled out. And also we, you know, you can morph your service. If, if, if it's not working that way, well, then we'll try, you know, flu vaxxers. We put posters up, you know, appropriate posters. But if that's not working, well, then we'll just go to the shop and set up. You know, it's, you've, you've just got to be flexible with, with how to... Um, Interact. And there's different, there's also different pockets of, of people that you're trying to um, access in those communities, you know, the elderly or the young or the ones who are camping out in the outstations. So there's all, you've got to try different uh, models to, to um, connect with those people. But certainly having um, Indigenous health workers, the AWIP program that went through TAFE where we were mentoring um Aboriginal health workers who would work with us in child health, we'd have specific ones in child health, were fantastic because they knew the mothers. And if something wasn't right, you'd just go, you know, what, what's going on? Or you'd jump in the car and go out and see grandma who knew that auntie was, you know, unwell. So now the other auntie was, you know, just that whole family connection, which we will never really um, fully understand. Um, they had a handle on that. And it's a it's a local in the community, so that you know that those things have been good. But on the ground level, I think, um, yeah, certainly we've become more aware, as you said, with the cultural safety and integrating more appropriate um, health services. Yeah, have you found it fulfilling to be providing service to these communities? Oh, three years, 30, 33 years, yeah. Um, I'm still here. I've, I, th- I'm, I just think I've got the best job in the world myself. You know, I'm really happy. People say to me, you're still there. And I go, yep, I'm still here. I love it. Um, I think now not doing the clinics, that's fine. I've actually um, stepped down uh, from senior flightness to sort of being part-time and it, and it was being spread a bit thin. So I actually ch- chose the EVAC side rather than doing it. So I just only do a couple of the odd day clinics now um but you know to try and get your teeth into a community like we set up um a play group in Kawanyama like I think probably city people just take that for granted you know you look it up and you go where's my nearest play group and you you know ring them up and you front up um we actually I got a grant to start a play group um in Kawanyama through play group Australia um and we had you know a couple of mums that we trained up and um except ours was just a little bit different and we included a cooking glass in ours for lunch for baby food. So we would, um, and I, um, we employed um, 
an Indigenous lady from Cairns who worked with Creation Kindy and she gave me a hand. So we would fly up and um, every fortnight or, well, it was weekly initially, um, set up a playgroup. And then we were hoping that would transition into the into the council and the community would the community mums could then continue to run it. I mean, it petered out after a while, but it was certainly a good challenge at the time. It's you know just to have a playgroup where what other people just take for granted, probably. That's fabulous. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're now doing um, a lot of emergency retrievals as sort of the primary work that you're doing, not so much the clinics. How do you prepare for an emergency flight? Uh, you. Depends. If it's Cairns, um, Mount Isa and Charleville are what we call the traditional bases or the clinical bases, we still employ um, generalist GPs there. So people from the communities and properties can ring a number directly and talk to our doctor. So they field thousands and thousands, like eight and a half thousand plus calls for Cairns. Um, a year just for general telephone consultations. So uh, those people can ring our doctor directly and say, you know, my husband John's got chest pain or, you know, little Billy's got an earache or whatever. Um, And our doctor will deal with that directly. So then our doctor will say, oh, quick, you know, we've got someone with chest pain at, you know, wherever and so we I will you know pack the plane first it's decided whether it's a a doctor only flight a doctor and nurse flight or a nurse only flight because about 65 percent of the flights are actually nurse only in Queensland um so that'll just be a pilot and a nurse uh so if it's a if the doctor's coming as well in the other bases Rockhampton Townsville Bundy Brisbane um there, it's it would be a Mediflight or Care Flight doctor. Mm. Um, so, and it does change all over the country. Yeah, it's depending on what state people are in, um, yeah, whether there's a doctor on board or not. But you're right; it is actually probably even um, a higher percentage across the country of where most flights are just a flight nurse and a pilot, um, and generally doctors are sent when it's deemed that medically that's the going to determine the best outcome for the patient. Anyway, mm. sorry, go on. You're right. So uh, you just pack your aircraft and go. Sometimes you get diverted, and that's that's when when it can get a bit tricky. And that's, what do you mean diverted? How, what does that mean? Well, I might be going out to get you know John with his broken leg, but coming back they'll say, oh, you know, could you go to Pomperau? There's someone else there with chest pain. So rather than Dealing with, um, they evaluate whether it's worth flying all the way back to pick up a doctor and go back or whether we can drop in and it's appropriate. It really comes down to whether the nurse is comfortable and it's in her scope of practice to be able to do that. So, you know, if they're comfortable with that. Um, And we could drop in and pick them up. Um, And flying around the Cape, that frequently happens, frequently happens. So you have to be a bit of, you know, jack of all trades to sort of um, get and, and be a bit flexible. A bit flexible. I, I, I think you must um, start a shift saying, I really have no idea what I'm going to be encountering, but I'm ready. 
Um, it seems, you know, because there is no predictable, most people go to work and they know I'll do this, this and this, but for you, it's never predictable, is it? No, no. You know what time your shift starts, but you have no idea, no idea what time you're going to get home. So that's... Or just, where you're going to go. Or where you're going to go. But, you know, that's what, that's probably the um, attraction of the, one of the attractions of the job. Yeah. What, what would be, and I'll probably regret asking you this, um, but what would be the worst medical evacuation that you've had to do in your 30-something years? Uh, yeah, there's one. One that sticks in my mind is um, we had a, a dreadful um, explosion where some men w- were burnt um, and to maintain the airway because the, there was burns in the airway. To maintain the airway, we had to put a tube down that man's neck um, to help him breathe, basically, and stop it swelling. Look, doing that, we knew that, that there was a very good chance he would never wake up. You know, we, he would never be able to survive that. So, you know, that was being the last person um, to talk to him, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's very hard. Was that a long time ago? Um. Four years, five years, maybe, six years. It all blends into one, really. Yeah. Um, it was my birthday anyhow. I know that much. Oh. <laughs> it oh. wasn't a good day. Not a yeah. good day. No, that is hard. There, There's also, though, I guess the lighter side of working with the service. Um, and when we were chatting before this interview, you mentioned a snake story. Would you mind telling me some of the lighter sides of, of what it's like to um, do your job? Yes. Well, I think anyone who works with me or knows me that I actually have quite a dislike slash phobia for snakes. Um, and uh, really, it's a proper one. Um, even a the proper s- one meaning meaning proper sick and bleeding. I've got, I, I have even the even the RFDS psychologist has tried to get me out of this, <laughs> and he's given up. Um, uh, anyhow, people people. When you're loading people onto the aircraft, they they pass you their belongings in everything from shopping bags to, you know, huge suitcases to whatever, just all different guises of their clothing or whatever they could grab at the time. So I had to go and pick up a child who'd had a snake bite and and that was fine and I'd said to the doctor, do not, under any circumstances, bring the snake near me. If they've got it, if they, I'm just warning you, don't do it. And he, um, anyhow, I, I um, was loading and loading the aircraft and they passed me this black bag and black um, rubbish bag and I said, you know, any cigarette lighters, anything flammable in here. And the guy looked at me and he went, looked up at the steps. I was on the top of the steps and he looked up and he said, no, that's the snake. <laughs> and at that point, I just threw the bag back out towards all the people because there was a lot of people on the tarmac. Got into the cockpit. Somehow, I don't know, I just sort of jettisoned myself. Backwards. Backwards. (laughs) (laughs) Tapping my chest, trying to remain calm. And the mother of the child was outside and she she was a fairly large lady and she's she's got this low-cut dress with um, 
sort of an ample bosom and a bit of cleavage and she was just killing herself laughing and I can just remember this chest heaving up and down, tears rolling down her face. It was the funniest thing she'd seen since, you know. But, um, yeah, no, it was that was very funny but it took me at least five minutes to calm down after that one. So I said, don't do that to me again. Like, <laughs> she goes, okay. The mother was mother. Luckily, thought it was very funny, and I presume the child with the snake bite was, was fine. fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely fine. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. When it comes to delivery of children in remote areas, that can often present some challenges and I know that... um, women who live very remotely are often monitored by the RFDS and and sometimes brought into a tertiary hospital well in advance just to prevent um, any last-minute emergencies. Um, How, in your role as a flight nurse, how have um, unexpected labours, premature babies and that sort of thing um, been coped with and do you have a story to tell? I'm confused of those. Um, most of the women in the country have to come in at 36 weeks. So wherever they choose to have their babies, they have to sit for a month, you know. Yeah. Um, and generally they'll choose where their family is or if they've got family there. Unfortunately, a lot of the Cape ladies don't have that luxury, so it's Cairns. Um, but we used to have quite a few prem labours, but since we've implemented a midwifery service and things that's actually um, decreased that probably the prem labours that used to be in the top 10, um, which is one of the reasons they wanted midwifery's um, midwives on the aircraft as well. Um, but probably the, the one that sticks in my mind is we desperately, desperately try not to deliver in the aircraft. Why um, is that? Amniotic fluid that's the fluid that's around the baby, is like a protolytic enzyme. It, it, it is really, really corrosive to aircraft, aluminium. If you break your waters on a lounge, two years' time you'll be throwing it out. It is, <laughs> it's wicked stuff. Anyhow, um, so we desperately try not to deliver anyone on an aircraft and if, and if they are, they'll be put on like a big trauma sheet that hopefully will absorb everything. But we had a little 32-week lady, young girl, and her grandmother that we picked up in Cooktown. Now, Cooktown's only 35 minutes from Cairns. And um, it was her first baby and 
the midwife and the doctor apparently had examined her and cooked out and said, no, 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 all good, all good, you know. She'll be right. She'll be right, yeah, first baby, not a problem. Anyhow, um, we were just over by Bora, which is about 10 minutes out of Cairns, and we were in a C90, which is um, pre, pre... A little Cessna. No, no, no so little, Beechcraft. Beechcraft, little Beechcraft. So we've gone Queen Air, C90. Now the 200s are even bigger again. So this was right. just a bit smaller. And um, the mum, the, the, the young mum says, I want to push. And I'm going, yep, okay. And the doctor says, no, no, she'll be right. Now women in transition... Like midwives, you just see this little subtle, like their toes, you know, sort of spread and curl down, you know, like like you're fanning your toes and you know that things things are really progressing when, when, when you see that. Anyhow, I'm looking down, I'm going, oh no, this isn't going to look good. And then she just said, I want to push. And I went, okay, I'll just have a little look. And she pushed and this huge bag of four waters, like the sack around the baby, just gushed all out and over the mattress, like over the bed stretcher. I could just see it rolling down the floor to the crack and even got grandma, which was two seats back. <laughs> Anyhow, so we knew this baby was going to come. Did um, the pilot know? Because the pilot, there's no doors in our No, planes. no, no. He had his headset on and he was facing forwards. And I just said to the doctor who I had on board the, and one of our doctors, there's a head-on view, like, this baby is coming. It's there. And sure as eggs, she, I'm saying, Mum, try to slow it down. She said, I'm pushing. She pushed. And we had a little 32-weeker baby just there who did beautifully, cried straight away, and, you know, we dried him and wrapped him up and gave him a grandma and it was all, all good. A great story. Um, but then I had to face the music and the doctor, of course, scarpered quickly because getting back, we had to ring the engineers. So right. the plane's taken, the aircraft's taken offline. Yeah, they have to that. clean it. They have to get rid of every All the floor, enzyme. <laughs> the floor comes up and under the flooring is actually just like, um, in those days it was just like, it's raw aluminium with a little divot in the middle. And in that divot that runs sort of, you know, under the floor is all the wiring all the, all the wires to the ailerons, all the braking, all the electricals. So it's, it's really imperative that that's sort of kept dry and clean. Anyhow, it took two hours, two hours to clean the aircraft. <laughs> so um, You weren't the most popular person? No. But, no. I mean, isn't that funny that, you know, we should be rejoicing a, a baby oh. mid-flight and instead we're scrambling to clean up the mess afterwards. But um, is there... Um, uh, within such a small space, like a plane is not big, is it difficult to be able to manoeuvre and to be able to assist a lady having a baby in a plane? It is, it, it's, you can't even stand up. No, no, I can't. I can touch both sides of my workspace and I can't stand up straight. So, um, no wonder I've got a bad back. Um, the, yeah, it's very difficult. It's, it's really difficult. Generally, we, We'll make a make a call if if we go out and someone's really in established labour. You'll make a call um, 
you know, seven centimetres, you stay and deliver there, under seven centimetres, depending how far they are from cans, whether you snatch and grab and, you know. Swoop and scoop. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Same, same. (laughs) We are the stork. Yeah. (laughs) We hope. Um, uh, So, yes, there's, you know, you just try and, but we, these days we don't have very many deliveries because we usually get it right better. Yeah. You know. And what gets put on a baby's birth certificate if they're born midair? I don't know, but I had to inform the pilot that we now have five passengers on board rather than four. So, yeah, so that was um, it was interesting. Um, is it a warm space when you're up high and you've got, like normally a maternity ward is really warmed up and um, the the lady in labour is is often in a state of semi-undress and so forth. Is it warm up there or is it is um, keeping a, a newborn baby warm really critical at that point because of the, the pressure and the temperature and the altitude of the of the plane? It is it is pretty critical to keep them warm. Pink, sweet and warm is the, the rule of thumb. Um, so, I mean, if you really get stuck, you just go skin to skin like they do in third world countries. So you just, you would just stuff the baby down the mother's front really and, you know, wrap it close in there and it can smell and you can, you can look at its little face on the side and, yeah, I've done that before um, with a 25-weeker. Wow. Yeah, that had to just go down on the mother's chest. She, um, yeah, we didn't didn't have the cot on board and that was the, you know, beautiful temperature there. That's yeah. what they do in Brazil. So yeah. after more than 30 years of working for the RFDS, are you still finding um, it challenging, exciting, or do you think you've seen it all? Oh, no. Every day is something new. Um, the view changes, best view in the office. Um, there is there is always something. There is always something different, um, you know, from having to land somewhere, get in a ute, get in a boat, you know, drag someone out of here, put them in a spinal mattress, try and get them back in the boat, onto the back of the ute, then into the back of the aircraft, you know. Um, we landed somewhere the other night and we thought, well, we're in the right spot because we couldn't see very well. And then the guy said, oh, we could switch the lights on, but the bugs are a bit bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, we said, oh, okay. So he switched the lights on and within minutes we just said, switch them off. Though I've got a photo. It is incredible. We had ended up doing the whole evac in head torches because I had bugs in my eyes. I got one in my throat and coughed and they were saying, making COVID jokes. Um, <laughs> and I said, no, no, it's fine. I've got bugs. <laughs> I'm trying not to eat bugs. Choking on bugs. They just, the midges were just like thick. I couldn't believe it. Well, if somebody listening was thinking about a career either as a nurse or, or with the RFDS as a flight nurse, would you recommend it? Absolutely. As long as you're flexible, dynamic and professional is what I say. Um, you you have to be able to be um, flexible. You've, you know, I think it, it's obviously a bit easier the longer you've been there because logistics, I love logistics, like trying to work things out. People will go, oh, I would like you to go, you know, Weeper, could you possibly go to Birmingham? No. You know, that's an hour and a half away. Right. This is time critical. Now, we yeah. can't just add that on. Um, or, no, it's easier to go Bamaga Weeper, you know, that way down because that's you can get fuel there and can't get it there and, you know, that sort of thing. So that 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 that's easy. 
that's that's the easy part of it. Um, but also technically loading and fitting people in the aircraft. Um, it's just just takes a bit of experience and you know, dare I say, common sense to work it out. Yeah. Um, that you that you can you know fit people in and and make it work. You have to be you have to be a bit um, inventive at times to to make things work, but that's okay. I think that's been part of our history. I've done some interviews um, in recent times where we were talking about the service, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And in almost every story there is when you end up in a, a very critical emergency situation, you really only have the resources that you have, uh, the people, the medical equipment, the, you know, whatever. So I, I remember interviewing somebody a short while ago where they had to use a piece of rubber tubing to to be able to simply get air into a young boy's lungs. Mm. So you just, you use what you have and though obviously from a service perspective, um, the better prepared you are, the better able you are to meet emergencies. Now, I do have one last question before we go. In my research, I discovered that you met the Queen in 2011. How did that come about? The Queen was coming to um, open or bless or whatever, whatever the Queen does, our new aircraft, um, but in the meantime, we got the PC-12s as well, which was quite new for Queensland. So we had had a new King Air, Beechcraft 200, and we had a PC-12 there. Which it's is made by Pilatus. Pilatus in Switzerland. Yeah, single, it's a single propeller, whereas, whereas the Beechcraft are dual. Yeah. Mm. So how did you meet the Queen? So I was senior flight nurse at Cairns Base. So the senior team, the doctor, the senior pilot and base pilot and the senior nurse um, all got to meet the Queen with the Premier and and the head of the RFDS, um, Bruce Maguire. So, um, yeah, it was was very exciting and we had 200 of our best friends in the hangar um, and very hot day. Um, and, yeah, it was quite – I nearly had to get a food taster though, boy, because <laughs> I said, oh, you know, not, not, not a royalist really, but, I, you know, but I said it's a privilege and an honour to meet any head of state. Yes. And someone said, well, if, you know, if you don't believe in the monarchy, you shouldn't be allowed to do this. You know, and I said, no, it's my it's my right. I'm the senior flight nurse. I'm doing it. Yeah. And I said, I think I need to get a food taster here because it, there was a lot of competition to, to meet the Queen. Like yeah. people coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. And, went, and what was she like? Did you shake her hand or what oh, happened? Oh, fantastic, yes. And, you know, she said the, the RFDS were – showcasing the, the PC-12. So it was first. And she sort of said, yeah, this aircraft's only got one engine. And we said, yes, well, let me show you the one that we really love with too. So, yeah. And and really, it was really um, amazing. Like she was well into 80s. She, you know, she was asking, you know, like our senior base pilot who had never been overseas, um, this was his first big trip to ferry the aircraft back. And... And she said, so if it was made in Switzerland, how did you get it back to Australia? Like the route, because there was the Afghanistan war was going on. And she, so she was actually saying, you know, with the war, which way did you come? And he's going, oh, we, you know, we went to, to um, Muscat and we had, oh, we had this great dinner in this Russell. And I said to her, 
It was his first trip overseas. She goes, oh, yes. And it, was, it was just gorgeous. Like It was just like a chat and spins going, you know, oh, we're here, here, here. Yeah, so just really sensible, like um, in, interesting questions. Like yeah. she's very well briefed and very smart. We're so privileged to have the Royal Charter. We got Absolutely. it in 1953 or 54. Um, and yeah, before that, we were just called the Flying Doctor Service of Australia. And ever since that point, that's why we're called the Royal Flying Doctor Service. So, hey, you got to meet the Queen. Absolutely. And Prince Philip, he was there. I think every time they come to Australia, we have somebody that comes to visit at one of our bases. Well, Spin, the pilot, said to William, I met your grandma. <laughs> Everyone, everyone, the protocol just sort of, everyone just went. <laughs> everyone took a deep breath yep. and thought, have we just lost the charter? Yeah. <laughs> and William said, I'll tell her. I met you. It was gorgeous. So, yeah. Thank you so much, Susan. This has been wonderful. I, I really enjoyed the chat and um, I'll make sure that I never um, bring a snake or mention a snake around you. And <laughs> I hope next time I come up to visit the Cairns base that I can pop in and say good day. Thank you very much. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.